welcome to War Machine, a podcast for theological nomads. I recently spoke with Jared Morningstar, who is a writer and educator with interests in philosophy of religion, Islamic studies, comparative religion, metamodern spirituality, and a number of other things. Jared does work for the Center for Process Studies, as well as the Cobb Institute, I'll make sure to link to both of those institutions so you can check out the work that's going on there, uh, as well as Jared's own website so you can see some more of the things that he's up to. We take as our starting point a recent piece he wrote uh, that appeared in Medium called A Metamodern Artistic Experimentalist Approach to Knowledge Production Qua Discovery. And our conversation largely centers around metamodernism, which is not something we've talked about at all uh, on this show, so uh, somewhat new territory, I guess, for us. We're at warmachinepodcast.com. And with that, here is Jared Morningstar. Peace. Hello, hello. Jared Morningstar coming in from Madison, Wisconsin, where I am based. Uh, perhaps relevant to your listeners, work for the Center for Process Studies and do a lot of communications, website, graphic design stuff for them. I have a background in religious studies primarily, and that's how I eventually got plugged into the the process world. Uh, But uh, yeah, I did a bachelor's degree in in religion that I completed back in 2018 and did a lot of study of Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, didn't get much uh, Christianity actually in my uh, ELCA Lutheran affiliated religious studies department. But since then, I have certainly done a, a good bit of work in digging into Christian theologies, both modern and, and ancient. So uh, very cosmopolitan, very sort of global kind of religious studies, uh, philosophy and theology sort of perspective I, I tend to bring. And that's uh, part of what formed this, this piece of mind that you're mentioning. Yeah, I mean, I guess that cosmopolitanism goes a little bit maybe hand in hand with metamodernism. And I want to talk about metamodernism as well. In fact, I think that might be the obvious starting point for, for today. But I got to ask you, is Morningstar your like legit last name? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's, it's uh, like given legal. by your, It's legal. Yeah, here's here's the proof. There's my license. Oh, you didn't, you didn't have to show me. I believe you. <laughs> Is that something like inherited for multiple generations or were your parents hippies or like, well, how'd that happen? Yeah, a, a lot of people presume it might be a, a native uh, American name, uh, mm. an, indig- an indigenous name. It is in fact not uh, whatsoever. Uh, it is a German name. And when my great grandparents emigrated to Canada from Germany, that name got uh, anglicized. So the original was Morgenstern in, in German and mm. became Morningstar. Uh, so yeah, it goes back uh, quite a ways, but not not quite as exotic as it might sound, just some German stuff. I mean, German is pretty exotic for me, from a, for, for, for a New Jersey kid, you know, I'm sure you know, it's associated with, you know, the devil and stuff like that. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, l- listener be warned. <laughs> right. I, I've only once encountered a, a situation where in some online discourse and polemics, someone uh, tried to whip that out at me and be like, of course, this guy's saying this heretical, wacky shit. He's got this devil name. Well, that's fun. I mean, then, you know, at least you know where you are in the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> I want to talk about metamodernism because it's not something that I frankly spend a lot of time thinking about uh, or working with, but certainly it comes up pretty often in my newsfeed in different kinds of conversations. Um, And the recent piece that you wrote isn't the first thing that you've published around this. I I kind of poked around and I found an older piece, maybe maybe it was from last year or the year before. There's a little uh, part from here I thought maybe a good place to to begin. You write, metamodernism as innovating a dichotomy, grounding in a skeptical yet aspirational attitude of worship towards the good. The sacred mystery of the good that is the object of worship is simultaneously a demand for radical iconoclasm and a permission for unabashed iconophilia. I can get on board with that. And it, it, it sort of brings to mind other things that are going on in, in intellectual space. Uh, my friend Tripp, who I, I think you know, not too long ago had a group called Believing Skeptics, you know, And I'm someone who's like really interested in radical theology. And sometimes that's referred to as Christian atheism, 
you know, and then there's like very interesting sympathies, I think, with chaos magic, for example, where there's this kind of willingness to tolerate ambiguity and to sort of freely oscillate between these states of credulity and incredulity, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, what can you can you give us a sense for what metamodernism is and how does that impact your work? Yeah, definitely. I think maybe uh, I'll start by qualifying that there are at this point uh, a number of uh, semi-competing definitions of uh, metamodernism. So I'll touch on uh, some of the major camps here, uh, at least as, as sort of an intro and, and okay. give a little bit more of my, my own take. The prominent kind of initial uh, usage of this term was more in a, a cultural uh, studies vein and uh, some important work in the 2010s by some Dutch theorists that really kind of laid some of the groundwork for for this term as as something that uh, analyzes and describes a, a sort of new mood in media art. Um, some of, but not the only feature uh, here is sort of a new sincerity. We're not just sort of a, this kind of ironic detachment of, of postmodernism. But then you also have this camp that comes that's a little more influenced by or doing something similar to to the integral theory of, of Ken Wilbur and uh, uh, that sort of lineage. So it's a more developmental metamodernism is kind of a an episteme of, of sort of a cognitive perspective that mm. uh, is, is sort of more integrative, more complex than postmodern consciousness, basically, that sort of thing. So a lot more kind of hierarchical, a little more prescriptive. Um, a little more David Longish. Yeah, definitely, definitely. <laughs> um, and then uh, you got this guy, uh, Jason Ananda Josephson Storm, a very interesting guy who wrote a 2021 book on metamodernism, who's really looking at it uh, as like a research program uh, in, in the humanities, uh, the human sciences. Uh, so here he's contrasting it not with, say, uh, postmodern philosophy, a la Derrida, Foucault, uh, these sorts of big names, uh, but rather sort of a, a prevailing sort of mood and methodology in the humanities at large that focuses a lot on sort of a very micro scholarship, hyper specialization, describing power relationships, uh, historicity, mm. uh, these sorts of things. And the metamodern move is sort of going through a lot of the, the postmodern critique of, uh, say, meta narrative, these sorts of things, but coming out the other side in a place where we're able to to work with some big picture ideas, not confined to sort of hyper-specialization and niche topical studies and can productively generalize on the other side of the, the postmodern uh, critique of such things. So regardless of uh, which definition mm-hmm. we're working with here, they're all sort of a, a post-postmodern uh, sort yeah. of a paradigm uh, worldview, something along those lines. Yeah, no, I think that's helpful. I wonder if it would be fair to say that you know, not that I necessarily want to uh, completely affirm this, but one way of thinking about it is a sort of synthesis in the sort of dialectical sense of modernism and then postmodernism. So you get this third thing, I suppose. And it makes me think in a religious sense of something like, um, like Ricoeur talks about a second naivete, it'd be like almost like a cultural second naivete or something like that. Yeah, definitely. And I think, uh, that that sort of way of looking at it, I think, fits most uh, nicely in the in the more developmental kind of integral influenced uh, vein of of metamodernism. That's it's pretty explicit. That uh, yeah, it's some kind of synthesis of both uh, modernism and and postmodernism, as well as various stages uh, that could come before traditionalism. Uh, there's all these different stage theories and, and developmental hierarchies proposed by these yeah. different uh, scholars. They're very interesting. But what do you um, think about that sort of approach? I mean, I, I understand it from a sort of heuristic perspective. I guess it has some like mm-hmm. some use value. I also think that that sort of thing can get reified in a way that's yeah. like not really that helpful and can be actually pretty shitty. Um, mm-hmm. what, what's mm-hmm. your What's your take on it? Yeah, I think this is probably the biggest uh, point of contention and there could be even called some broad metamodern community or scene or something, you know, the debate about these stage theories, uh, the extent to which a developmentalist perspective is helpful, warranted, uh, very, uh, very hot button topics and have been for yeah. probably about the past year or so. I, I sit somewhere in the middle. Uh, personally, I find these developmental schemes fun to play with. They're interesting. 
Uh, they can be helpful for for mapping various things. But I think, yeah, the issue of reification and sort of a kind of decadent applications of, of this sort of thing, like mm. uh, trying to in like a dialogue with someone like uh, map what supposed stage or level of cognitive. Yeah, yeah I've, se- I've seen this. Gross. <laughs> I've seen this sort of thing like weaponized more than once. And it's just mm-hmm. like, OK, again, it's it lets you know where you are in the conversation. It's like, yeah, you're just saying that because you're like at green level. <laughs> Sure. Yeah. And, and it is, I feel like it's almost always green. That's, uh, and for listeners who don't know, this is the color associated with the postmodern uh, perspective within the sort of Wilberian uh, tradition of, of this kind of integral spiral dynamics stuff. So mm. it's always, uh, oh, you're just green. Uh, anytime someone has uh, too, say, uh, intense of a social justice or something, a uh, concern about uh, one of these uh, theories or some, something in the discourse. Uh, so that's quite telling. And I think, uh, the fact that, yeah, there's a lot of uh, wanting to strongly reject these supposed postmodern uh, perspectives uh, mm-hmm. in, in some of these uh, discourses. And it can be a little worrying to me because I don't see some of the breadth and depth of engagement with the actual sources of that yeah. tradition that much. I don't see mm-hmm. a lot of uh, uh, actual sort of reading of, of Derrida, Foucault, Ricoeur, any, any of these uh, these French theorists, post-structuralists. And I mean, if you read uh, some of that stuff, as primary sources, it's, it can be very, very different than the postmodern cultural mood or the mm-hmm. the program in the in the human sciences that Storm is 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 describing. Uh, so yeah, there's definitely some some harmful reductionism there, and I'm very interested to keep much more in touch with the the gems of of that postmodern lineage, especially in the primary sources themselves. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I I think that to the extent that postmodernism gets conflated with deconstruction, it's not just that the term is being necessarily misused sometimes it is but i think it like obfuscates the way that i think that certain kinds of metamodernism that's more associated with experimentation and playfulness actually doesn't recognize the way that that's the fulfillment it could be argued of deconstruction and so i yeah i almost want to insist on drawing a line between those two things whenever it, it comes up even though they, they do often come paired yeah, it can be helpful for for sure. Um, yeah, regardless of uh, what we call these various things, uh, I think uh, good to do some deep engagement with Derrida and uh, the broader deconstruction uh, tradition. Heidegger too, certainly. Yeah, I think uh, plenty of value uh, in there. And I think the popular image of this kind of nihilistic, anti-realist uh, sort of thing that's associated with deconstruction is not really how it feels when you are uh, actually engaging with with the work. There can be some of that there, um, but it's not nearly as uh, forward or uh, important of a, a feature uh, as I think people mistakenly read it as. Yeah, and you, know, you mentioned Heidegger. I think maybe he's like a great example of where a more metamodern sensibility can be helpful, right? Because obviously he's extremely important for, you know, contemporary thought and you don't want to ignore him, but you do want to kind of just say, well, fuck Heidegger because he was a fucking Nazi. And I think there's, um, I think that's one place where something like the metamodernism can help one approach a text in a way that is, yeah, there's a sincerity to it, but also a suspicion about it. Mm-hmm. One of the important terms in in some of these sort of lineages of metamodernism is, is this idea of oscillation. Uh, so mm. being able to oscillate between, say, a more detached, ironic, deconstructive perspective, and then a more uh, insider, sincere, authentic uh, approach. And I mean, it is very, very dialectical in, in certain ways then uh, when applied to that sort of intellectual academic activity of engaging in some kind of a, a critique or application of some kind of philosophy, some some source text, uh, mm-hmm. anything like that. So, and I mean, considering that is dialectical and uh, for me, I think it's it's very pragmatist and experimental as well. See what happens when, when you yeah. do these sorts of things. See what kind of... Uh, uh, results, what kind of perspectives kind of come forth when you do that kind of uh, engagement. Yeah. So it's not new in, in some senses, but mm. uh, I think the, the metamodern term is it's kind of a helpful signifier that uh, there's some kind of new new mood, something new uh, emerging that yeah. uh, can, can be placed uh, with that term. So I, I use it somewhat loosely. And sometimes okay. uh, people are not that happy with uh, my loose usage of this term, but uh, I think it's uh, somewhat effective uh, nonetheless. <laughs> yeah. 
So you, you're talking about the usage, I suppose, or implementation, uh, the putting to work of a metamodern sensibility. And uh, to a large degree, that's what your medium piece was about, um, especially in terms of knowledge production. And I want to ask you about that. It brought to mind, since, since you're kind of presenting it in this artistic way, uh, one of the things that brought to mind for me was um, a while back, we were talking to uh, Petra Carlson, who wrote a book on avant-garde art and radical theology. And she talks in there a lot about uh, this artist that I I had never heard of before. Uh, I'm going to butcher it. It's like Lubov Popova, something like this. She was one of the early members of the uh, constructivist movement in Russia, which came out of Russian futurism or something like this. She developed a, a definition of constructivism as this combination of like working with the unique properties of uh, an object. So there's this revised understanding of materials and your relation to them to produce different kinds of effects. So there's this very experimental element to it. Um, it also brought to mind American pragmatism in, in, the, in the sense that, you know, we're kind of bracketing out in the case of constructivism representation or for pragmatism, maybe like the things in themselves or something like this in favor of other concerns. So I don't know. I just kind of see an artistic similarity there that I think is really interesting. Yeah, definitely, and see much of those those same uh, seeds uh, in in some of these same traditions, both uh, intellectual, artistic, and and otherwise. Uh, always valuable to excavate those. I mean, there's there's this very fetishistic uh, attitude towards originality we have. So mm. yeah, let's get rid of that. Let's uh, see what kind of gems we can unearth through some kind of humble engagement with all that has come before. Uh, so it doesn't need to be this like totally original, new uh, kind of thing, but yeah. uh, happy to have the term that circles around some of these uh, constitutive elements in, in some kind of new combination that gives them gives a feeling of a movement, uh, something like that, uh, that, yeah. that people uh, are, are hungry for, I think. I mean, uh, I feel like postmodernism in the kind of general culture is understood as, yeah, this very relativistic, nihilistic uh, thing that gives you no sort of stable stable yeah. ground to to stand on. And while I don't think that's very accurate in terms of uh, being faithful to some of those source texts, as I'm as I've been saying, uh, that's that's kind of what people associate uh, right. with the bat. So if you're trying to reach a larger sort of intellectually engaged public, uh, I think metamodernism may be a more helpful term there because it's it's starting to signal, say, something a little more constructive, having some kind of sincerity on the other side of uh, irony and, and detachment, having yeah some skin in the game, intellectual exploration, uh, not being too sort of uh, from the get-go limited to certain conclusions, methodology, methodologies, mm. ideologies, these, these sorts of things. So yeah, it's helpful in that regard, I think. Yeah, as long as nobody's trying to smuggle in some uh, supremacist shit or whatever. Yeah, there probably are some people doing that. Yeah. <laughs> so got to be yeah. vigilant. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the other things you mentioned in the piece, kind of you know, pivoting from like more epistemic concerns of modernism and postmodernism, has to do with constraints. Uh, and you know, you didn't linger on that very long, but it kind of jumped out at me um, because, well, first I think I guess I should say that the way that you use it has to do with, um, again, in an artistic sense, uh, how artists will work within constraints in order to produce novelty, right? And I actually I absolutely affirm that as a musician. I think that's that's completely right. Uh, on the podcast, we're working through um, Clayton Crockett's book on energy and change. And in the chapter on bioenergetics and life, there's an important part in there where he's he's working with Catherine Malibu, who reimagines Kant's transcendental as a, as a real but fluid constraint. Yeah, I just thought it was interesting to kind of think about some of the things that you're writing about in this like broader cosmological vision that might be a little bit closer to Whitehead. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, there's this long uh, self-conscious tradition in, of these process philosophers and theologians of constructive postmodernism. Uh, and that kind of sounds a lot like what a lot of these people are trying to do with this metamodern terminology. So I think, uh, yeah, revisiting some of that work, uh, making it a, a sort of live player in, in, in the discourse that's emerging, because there's a lot of ground that's already been tread there. Uh, mm. In some ways, it's going to be different than uh, what the metamodern people are trying to do. But uh, yeah, I think there's a lot to be gleaned from uh, the work of uh, yeah Griffin, uh, certainly, who was very mm. central in using this term and sort of tying it to, to Whitehead, James, uh, Peirce, and, and a number of others. Uh, yeah. So some people who are a little more attached to some of those uh, 
those discourses are a little antagonistic to metamodernism, feeling that it uh, perhaps is, uh, yeah, thinking it's too new, thinking it's too original, uh, mm. sort of disconnected from this existing lineage that has has so much to say. But then also, especially the the kind of revisions to some of that that discourse that happened with the work of Catherine Keller, uh, Roland Faber, and and others that are in a bit more of a dialogue with the continental post-structuralist traditions, radical theology, these these sorts of things that uh, then kind of deconstructs this uh, this opposition set up by Griffin and others between the supposed deconstructive postmodernism and their process constructive postmodernism. So uh, there you have probably the most uh, continuity and mm. engagement harmony between that constructive lineage uh, and the the kind of postmodernism we've been talking about uh, in this conversation. So there, I think especially would be some some helpful resources for people. Yeah. That's no, interesting. I mean, in in radical theological discourse, this comes up as is the death of God a irrevocable and final event, or is the death of God really just the death of the death of God in this more sort of cyclical dialectic? And I think there's an interesting tension there that can I don't necessarily want to resolve it. I think it, it can be productive. I guess it's maybe too obvious to say that this so far this discussion has been very well, meta, uh, but I'm curious about some of your other interests with uh, Islamic theology or these kinds of things. How are you putting metamodernism to work? How are you bringing metamodernism to bear on other kinds of subject matter, I guess? Yeah, I think uh, metamodernism is a helpful framework when approaching Islam as as someone who wants to get beyond some of the uh, pathologies of both kind of a, a decadent reactive traditionalism or a very sort of naive modernism, which you can very easily see examples of, of both of those in the history of Islam in 21st, 20th, and 19th century. Uh, nowadays, there are more postmodern approaches to, to Islam as well, uh, especially coming out of uh, some Islamic studies departments in Western academia and intersecting with activist and, and justice movements. Uh, and there's there's a lot of good things, in fact, in all of these uh, camps, all of these lineages here. Uh, I think they all do have something beneficial to, to offer, but they all do have their pitfalls uh, as well. And so I see metamodernism and uh, some of the, the methodologies, values uh, in that perspective as, as offering a more hopeful chance for, for synthesis and integration of, of all those kind of disparate and historically combative kind of modes of understanding Islam uh, in a more contemporary time. Uh, I, I want to take the issue of hadith as as kind of the as an example here. Uh, so for those who don't know, the hadith are a collection of the recorded sayings and, and actions of the Prophet Muhammad that was sort of codified into a number of different authentic works, compilations of, of this material a handful of centuries after uh, sort of the advent of Islam. So traditionally, this is an extremely important source uh, of the religion. Other than the Quran itself, here is sort of the authoritative text in, in Islam. And uh, in the traditional schools of law and, and theology, uh, you, in fact, read the Quran in light of the Hadith. This, this corpus kind of provided the, the hermeneutical key for opening up the Quran by providing a lot more uh, particular concrete material uh, the Quran does not, uh, for example, tell you anything about how to pray as a Muslim. Uh, yet, you may know that there's very specific forms to, that this action takes in, in Muslim religious life. So uh, for that, uh, you can use the, the Hadith material, say, to, to actually have uh, specific instructions on, on matters like that. Uh, and it has plenty of moral sort of material as well. And so, yeah, legal scholars are able to use this and in sort of intricate ways to actually provide rulings on, on specific issues. And likewise, theologians can turn to this material as well and uh, uh, get a little bit more of uh, more, more data uh, for understanding the, the perspective of God in Islam by going to the prophet himself, this uh, best of creation who had this zenith relationship with God. No one no one really could claim a, a higher degree of closeness with God than than the prophet could. Yeah, it strikes uh, me as the sort of compiled red letters of mm -hmm. the of the New Testament or something like this. 
Sure. Yeah. And in some ways, uh, yeah, the, the Hadith are probably more similar to the New Testament than the, the Quran is as a sort of historic religious document, sacred text sort of thing. Um, but and in that vein, uh, in, in more contemporary times, you have uh, quite the application of historical critical methodologies to these authoritative compilations that uh, basically work to deconstruct a lot of the sort of presumed uh, authority, presumed validity, verification of, of these sorts of things and, and problematize whole swaths of material uh, contained in, in these texts that have been traditionally usually thought of as very reliable, very uh, authoritative, so very destabilizing uh, there. And so uh, before this even really kicked off that much, you do have the, the Muslim modernists in 19th and 20th century all over the Islamic world, but uh, certainly in South Asia, uh, uh, India, Pakistan, there's a lot of activity in that vein, as well as Egypt, uh, Turkey, some of these these places. Yeah, so th these folks were starting to get critical of this uh, Hadith material. They were uh, more interested in, in turning back to the, the Quran and emphasizing that and seeing that there's this sort of broad scale uh, vision here. It has has a little bit more of an emancipatory flavor, perhaps a little less uh, legalistic in in the overall tenor, and uh, in light of some of the experiences of colonialism and just encountering modernity through the advances in European Western technology science, uh, there's an idea that the sort of ritualism and rote legalism that seemed to be inspired by these hadith corpuses was uh, something negative and and not really the intent of Islam as, as a revealed religion. So get people kind of rejecting this material pretty strongly uh, in, in some regards, and even more so in, in kind of a postmodern vein. So uh, and it's kind of ironic from at least a, a very Christian-centric perspective that uh, some of the most kind of progressive uh, leaning Muslims are sort of deep textualists uh, with the Quran because they see, okay, if we narrow the battleground here just to the uh, literal word of God in the Quran, you actually have a lot more kind of open-ended uh, uh, I mean, you don't get into some of the, the kind of trickier issues around the rights and, and roles of women, uh, though some of that certainly is in the in the Quran. But a lot of the uh, a lot of the material that's kind of hardest to square with our basic moral intuitions as, as modern subjects comes from the Hadith uh, material there. So long preamble there, uh, but uh, I think both of these uh, sort of moves of either buying into the, the Hadith corpuses kind of as is and uh, rejecting them on, on sort of a, a large scale, I don't think either of those are particularly helpful. I think there's just an incredible wealth of, of information and spiritual guidance, uh, interesting stuff contained in these collections. And to reject them outright seems like you're missing out on on a lot of stuff. But uh, yeah, buying into it and, and taking it as, as too literalistically authoritative uh, produces some very, very bad results as well. And uh, in sort of Islamic uh, fundamentalism, if you want to use that term, here you have kind of a rejection of some of the more nuanced and uh, dynamic legal hermeneutics of the classical schools and a much more literalist uh, reading of especially the Hadith literature. So, yeah, we want to get beyond uh, either of those. And I think a metamodern approach could could work really well here. You uh, kind of bracket uh, some of these questions of historicity. Uh, maybe maybe the prophet did say this. Maybe he didn't. Maybe there's a, a sort of a germ of uh, authentic perspective here that then was kind of uh, through all this chain of transmission, got, got morphed in, in various ways. And maybe something was added. Maybe something was lost. But we can probably work with, with this stuff regardless by doing these these sorts of bracketing moves and uh, having an openness, a playfulness, a focus on well, what, what kind of religious life does this produce? And here I'm in agreement with certain more modernist Muslims who say, okay, we should uh, go to the Quran first, have a sort of thematic reading to, to find major themes, kind of the thrust of the text, the, the ethos of religious life, spirituality, moral formation that, that comes to the fore here. Um, and then use those as uh, benchmarks for how our theology, how our uh, legal rulings are are kind of coming off. Like, does it really square with with that? And I think, yeah, the, the kind of metamodern method that I'm describing is is quite effective in in sort of doing that in, in kind of dynamic and nuanced ways. It, it's interesting. I'm also sympathetic to the uh, in there you were you were talking about. I forget if it was the modernists who were saying, let's go to the text and have that be our 
I suppose our starting point, it, it kind of reminds me of like a sola scriptura kind of thing, but I don't know enough about, again, Islam to say that this would approach anything like a reformation. Has there been a reformation within uh, Islam? Yeah, I mean, there's there's been a lot of talk about it, especially amongst these Muslim modernists from the past two centuries and uh, then sort of Orientalists uh, analyzing Islam. The basic opinion at this point is mm -hmm. that uh, there are some things we can kind of map between the European Reformation, uh, uh, the Protestant Reformation, and some of the more modern or contemporary transformations Islam is going through, but too, too sort of a rigid of a mapping here is really unhelpful, and most would kind of reject trying to to use that that terminology on the whole, okay. just because the Islamic encounter with modernity is in a very different context that also involves colonialism yeah. uh, and these sorts of things. Uh, the kind of very textualist, uh, morally puritanical mm -hmm. uh, form of Islam that has come to the fore is so influenced by the petrodollars of Saudi Arabia, very directly funded by that as a result of the partnership between this puritanical movement and, and the House of Saud that gained power in, in more recent times as a, a nation state. And again, colonialism intersects here. Uh, but yeah, there's there's some uh, some similar features. Yeah, I uh, guess I, you know, like perhaps others, I have a bad habit of approaching foreign ideas through familiar concepts. So uh I'll try to be better about that in the future. I don't know how to avoid it, though, honestly. I mean, it can be valuable for the kinds of lines of thought that it, it spurs, yeah. um, as long as we're not too sort of uh, from the get-go wed to this mm -hmm. being, oh, this is the same kind of historical transformation or something. And sure. I mean, there's a lot of reactivity around some of this uh, discourse from Muslims because it is itself very sort of Orientalist and, and colonialist and that, oh, yeah. these Oriental subjects just need to get to our rational European uh, uh, mode of theologizing and stop getting yeah. stuck in these these superstitious backwaters of uh, ritualism and, and these sorts of things. So very reasonably, uh, people are not so happy with how this is uh, pursued sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, now that you mentioned that, I could see how trying to apply that language could seem, or maybe it is, supremacist. So uh, I appreciate you uh, letting me know about that. The little bit I do know about uh, Islam, I read a little bit of uh, Ibn Arabni. One of the things that I think is important for Romney anyways, is the uh, importance of the imagination. And, you know, when, when we're talking about art as knowledge production, it seems like an important thing to talk about. Um, I started reading our mutual friend, uh, Eric, da uh, Eric Davis, Andrew Davis's um, Exo Life book. Um, haven't gotten too far in it yet, but it's pretty good. Hot so off the press. So. Very hot, very hot, sizzling. Um, <laughs> but he has this nice way of uh, getting at this in a, in a way. Uh, in the introduction, I, I thought it was pretty cool. He writes, put simply, holding that nature is all there is does not tell us what nature is, what nature consists in, or for that matter, what is ultimately natural. A more robust affirmation of, quote, naturalism would require this kind of metaphysical investigation. Um, I really like that. I mean, I think that's one of the ways sometimes these things are addressed, like we've been talking about bracketing out the metaphysical question uh, when it comes to imagination. But I think there's really something interesting that happens when you approach the question of imagination in this kind of expanded naturalism that would at least try to include imagination in a broader sort of metaphysical picture. How, how is that something that you contend with? How do you deal with that? Yeah, I think uh, it can be really, really helpful. So just as a uh, interesting kind of genealogy here, one of the great Western interpreters of Ibn Arabi is this uh, 20th century French theologian, phenomenologist, philosopher of imagination, Henri Corbin. Uh, he was in that Eranos circle with people like Carl Jung and uh, also in conversation with some very interesting theologians and, and philosophers from that time. His copy of uh, Being in Time has all these margin notes in Arabic and Persian, really incredible stuff. But uh, uh, his work has really been taken up by this cognitive scientist, John Verveke, at the University of Toronto. Uh, I'm familiar with him, yeah. Yeah, especially around this uh, idea of the imaginal, the imagination, which Corbin is, of course, pulling from these Sufi mystical authors in, in many ways, although giving it his own spin in, in certain respects. So, yeah, and Verveke right now is, is sort of deeply invested in this project of uh, trying to craft sort of an alternative uh, 
think he's calling it transcendental naturalism or something that goes beyond sort of the assumptions of physicalism and, and yeah. materialism, these sorts of things. And uh, this sort of role of of the imaginal faculty is, is kind of very crucial for his argument in, in certain respects. And he's pretty adjacent to this metamodern space, these, these discourses. I uh, don't know if I've heard him use the term much, but a lot of the metamodern people think he's certainly one of them and, and perhaps uh, a metamodernist, even if he isn't uh, some kind of consciously identified. Yeah, we're going to drag him kicking and screaming. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> as long as he leaves his Neoplatonism at home. Well, I don't, I don't, I, I don't, I don't really mind it. It's just, I can't really get on board with it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because, uh, I mean, so much of the Sufi theology of a imagination is uh kind of grounded in in a certain neoplatonism i mean it it describes this uh this intermediary faculty this intermediary realm in this kind of celestial hierarchy that is between form and idea uh, or something like that but uh, i mean having this sort of complexly layered dynamic cosmology ontology certainly a lot better than the the kind of classic two worlds of nature versus supernature where it's kind of a stark dualism there's at least a lot of continuity and and flow in the neoplatonism that uh, the sufis are sort of working with and verdiki is picking up you mentioned uh briefly jung and uh in his book on alchemy he gives this example of the chemist i think it's like kukulier or something like this who somewhat famously um there's a story of him trying to solve some kind of problem of benzene or something like this i'm not a chemist then he's sitting near the fire and falls asleep and has a dream of the ouroboros a snake eating its own tail and from that he's able to imagine the organization of this benzene ring something like this which i think is really fascinating when you talk about the role of imagination within like scientific method but then i was trying to remember some more of the details of this story because it's been a long time since i had looked at it I, I was poking around online just a little bit ago, and it turns out the scholarly consensus now is that that story is not true. <laughs> it's made up. And I was like, oh, that's uh, disappointing. And I was like, actually, this is this is perfect. This is a good example of what metamodernism can do for us. The question no longer becomes, is this historical? It's um, how can we put this, let's just call it a myth, to work? And how can we sort of leverage the power of the mythic within that story yeah yeah absolutely i mean uh exactly sort of my line of thinking there as well i mean the the historical frame on such things is important in very many cases especially depending on how they're taken up uh to what extent some kind of literalism or kind of a, a realism about uh such things is like uh the crux of their authority again thinking kind of of scripture here uh but yeah, I mean, if we are able to take these things up in, in other respects as well, in, in sort of a existential or, or kind of mythic uh, frame, I think yeah, a lot of possibility to to get more out of them, irregardless of if the historical aspect is is there or not. So we don't need to uh, kind of get, get stuck in these some of these cul-de-sacs of discourse. Uh, occasionally, it might be very relevant, and uh, people are free to kind of make up their minds about when they think that that is the case. But uh, yeah, I'm very down with doing some uh, existential hermeneutics of a myth like that. I think it has a lot of value uh, in that regard. Yeah, I am getting arguments for me, but it won't answer the question as to whether Jesus really was raised from the dead or not. So, (laughs) all right. So um, I was kind of cramming for the test here a little bit today, and um, I actually employed the services of ChatGPT. I said, hey, ChatGPT, Here's what I did. I copied the entirety of your essay into ChatGPT and I said, hey, read this and give me some questions having to do with the sort of possible political upshot or social upshot of this. There's a couple questions here. How about I'll give you three and you can pick which one you sure, want. Sure. All right. The first one here is metamodernism emphasizes the creative and experimental aspects of knowledge production. How might these qualities be harnessed to inspire political and social activism, particularly among younger generations? All right, second question. Can you provide an example of a real-world social or political issue where the metamodern approach has been applied effectively to promote positive change or challenge the status quo? All right, one more. 
The concept of asymptotic realism is mentioned. How might this perspective influence our understanding of political truths or realities, especially in a world filled with misinformation and polarization? I actually really like that question. Yeah, that one might be the best. Uh, yeah. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll give my take uh, to the best of my ability uh, right. off the cuff here. I mean, this is absolutely something I, I think about a lot, especially in light of our social media technologies, where on the one hand, uh, opportunities for dialogue, discourse, connection with people that you otherwise would not have a chance to be talking with or to be uh, exposed to if it's a, a sort of non-interactive relationship. It's, it's great. I mean, there's just so much uh, potentiality there that, that's very positive. Uh, on the other hand, uh, there is proliferation of misinformation, disinformation, I have certain qualms with uh, how sometimes those terms are used so like polemically and, and ideologically. And and I mean, that itself is is kind of a an indicator of the way that the kind of capitalist uh, business model of these social media companies encourages a certain kind of divisiveness, low quality discourse that, uh, yeah, I mean, it's great for their engagement and the bottom line for their advertising uh, revenue. Socially, it's noxious. And personally, it is exhausting and uh, conducive of worsening mental health and uh, gives you a, a poor sense of the degree to which there's conflict and, and polarization by constantly highlighting those those aspects and uh, overshadowing the the more synthetic, uh, goodwilled sorts of things. So this is a rough, rough situation we got here. So yeah, what can what can our meta modern artistic experimentalist uh, commitments uh, do for us here? I think they got something something good to provide. I mean, one of the the big issues, the big ideas, is is kind of like deplatforming, kind of rejecting uh, certain perspectives outright, and then people who are very unhappy uh, about that. And uh, I think so much of uh, what we've inherited is not helpful for kind of parsing that issue. It's like, uh, well, how do, how do you know something is not uh, worth your time? Uh, it's like so morally deplorable that an intellectually bankrupt that uh, any kind of uh, interaction with it is a disservice to yourself and like this uh, inflation of, of something that ought to just be uh, sort of uh, kind of rejected in this uh, very strong and, and clear sort of way. Well, uh, unless you sort of go into that perspective and actually kind of parse it out, you kind of can't know in advance, but why would you want to do that with something like... Uh, like some white supremacist uh, Nazi stuff, you know, yeah, it's like, yeah. do I want to uh, give the time and uh, give the sort of benefit of the doubt and uh, good faith here? Like I have some serious moral intuitions that say, right. uh-uh, and, uh, but and we're kind of stuck in in this rationalism, I feel like in, in a lot of ways that that says that that needs to be done. Um, so I think that, that this metamodern approach is it's helpful in that it acknowledges that there's this kind of provisional sort of leap of faith aspect that goes into these sorts of decisions whenever we're deciding whether something is or isn't a worth engagement to, to begin with, while also then kind of opening the doors for modes of relation with alternative perspectives, some which may be very good, some which may really kind of need some uh, <laughs> TLC uh, to to uh, have a, a positive contribution. But that is a lovely way to say that. Yeah, yeah. There's plenty of forms of conservatism that are not sort of a full throttle, bigoted uh, fascism, basically. And there's a lot of stuff in there that has uh, value. Uh, how can we kind of approach that not from this kind of uh, exhausting sort of liberal supremacist or like self-righteous kind of leftist uh, modes that uh, are very un, uh, unwilling to even get in from kind of the inside at, at those sorts of perspectives. Uh, not that I'm just saying we oh, need to do this kind of lovey-dovey empathy with everyone sort of thing, but uh, I mean, even if you're thinking about this purely sort of tactically, I mean, unless you can talk to conservative people in language that actually draws upon their actual values, their actual concerns, any kind of dialogue or discourse you're having with them is not going to be very, very productive. So yeah, I think the the experimental provisional methodology here is, is helpful in that regard. So you can bracket some stuff, check it out from the inside, 
go out, analyze it from different frameworks from the outside, use it as a framework for sort of self-critique perhaps, and then you can be in a better position to, to relate in uh, a variety of ways, some of which may be productive. Yeah, I appreciate all that. I, I also wonder the extent to which a kind of metamodern milieu plays a role in uh, creating the conditions for those kinds of deep divisions as well. You spoke about moral intuitions, um, but there's also in the background of this uh, questions of you know epistemology, media literacy, these kinds of things. And I think the lines that get drawn, they get drawn in ways that they wouldn't necessarily in previous, let's say, technological epochs, it wouldn't allow for. Yeah, I don't think I've done enough uh, sort of on any of these kind of fronts to, to really give something substantive, but uh, That's fair. Let, me, let me ramble on, see what happens uh, <laughs> per, per my methodology that I ramble on my way. Son. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it'd be very interesting and I have not seen this yet uh, trying to do some kind of study of uh, how metamodernism itself is maybe some uh, emergent kind of perspective worldview paradigm because of uh, technological sorts of uh, changes. I think that could be very interesting, very illuminating. I think likewise, uh, there's some kind of metamodern critiques we could level against uh, the, the forms of uh, uh, social media, other communication technologies, and uh, now more and more, especially the the AI, large language model sort of uh, technologies that are available. Uh, yeah, in terms of the social divisions, it's a good question. Uh, I think part of what what these technologies have done, uh, especially the the social media ones, is just exposed a lot of stuff. <laughs> you get exposed to all sorts of different folks, all sorts of different people. So the the kind of uh, confrontation of pluralism is like a, a huge result of, of this technology. Even like 30, 30 years ago, before a ton of internet, you, you really didn't have that kind of a confrontation. The, the person who lives in, in rural Oklahoma uh, probably has a pretty homogenous small town they live in. And while they are exposed to media artifacts through television, radio, movies, uh, these sorts of things, magazines, print media, there's a, typically, uh, these are pretty uh, mainstream. Um, occasionally, we'll get kind of outlier perspectives. But in this kind of old media regime, uh, it uh, never something you really needed to concern yourself with uh, so much versus now, our rural Oklahoma friend goes on Twitter, goes on TikTok, and might experience all kinds of kind of way out there from their vantage point type of perspectives, uh, modes of living that uh, may feel very threatening because of their intensity, their prominence on these platforms. And uh, by serving them this kind of content, these platforms are able to keep them on longer and uh, make more money. So yeah, having having better tools to deal with with pluralism definitely seems like both uh, one of the necessities of our age and uh, one of the things that a metamodern perspective can can hopefully help with in that uh, lets you get inside different perspectives and sort of acknowledges the provisionality of your rejection or acceptance of various things uh, rather than getting too bogged down in sort of essential truth claims and, and these sorts of things. Uh, yeah. And I, I think it can also, uh, for a lot of people, perhaps give a justification to uh, something of a apolitical stance, but not in the, in the kind of disconnected way that uh, is often kind of understood with this term where this very privileged uh, type of person just says they're, oh, I'm not political. And they're just then uh, implicitly sort of supporting the status quo. Yeah, yeah it's, it's like, that's not good. That's very ideological uh, and very based on, on your identity. But needing to have takes and opinions on all these culture war issues that are in very many ways manufactured by the, the algorithms of these, these social media platforms, sort of intentionally deciding to unplug from that, at least in the highly energetic, uh, polemical mode that is is so prominent. I think a metamodern perspective can give you a, a justification for doing that on, on pragmatic grounds, understanding sort of your own intellectual humility. Uh, maybe you don't know everything about these issues and shouldn't be uh, grandstanding in the digital public square, if that is a proper metaphor for these things. Uh, no, I think that's about right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's some stuff. There's my ramble. No, it is an excellent ramble. Um, five stars. 
I mean, I think you're right uh, to the extent that metamodernism can help give a sort of, uh, I don't know, more enlightened perspective on some of these things, right? But just to kind of go back to the question around technology, I also think that that's maybe one possible option. Nativism and a retreat into tribalism is the other side of that. Um, I think it's interesting that we name human epochs in technological terms, you know, Iron Age, Bronze Age, Industrial Age, and so on and so forth. There's something really deeply profound about how we relate to each other through technology, plot those on a line. Those periods become shorter and shorter, uh, mm-hmm. right? So there's a sort of acceleration mm-hmm. to that. And I think that gets to how we're, you know, technology is outpacing our ability to adapt. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That could perhaps plug in in interesting ways with some of the more developmental stuff you see in the in the metamodern space in that that has that same pattern of uh, shorter and shorter intervals before the next new thing that transcends the previous paradigm, worldview, uh, methodology, etc. If we are to take that up and hopefully hold it somewhat lightly and playfully, maybe helpful for kind of mapping uh, between these things and perhaps preempting some of the kinds of uh, cognitive skills that uh, need to be cultivated as uh, these, mm-hmm. these new technological regimes come on the scene. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you uh, wanted to talk about? Yeah, not that I can think of off the top of my head. Okay. Was, uh, nicely meandering. I appreciated that. That's what we do here, uh, nomadic theology. Excellent. Um, so what's next for you? What are you working on? Well, uh, doing a lot of stuff uh, for the Center for Process Studies right now. People can look forward to our next edition of the Process Perspectives magazine, of which I am now the editor. Uh, nice. So that'll be dropping, uh, hopefully, in a couple of weeks as I finish editing up the articles. Uh, I've got something in there myself on Islamic process theology. Uh, there's uh, an interesting article on Marxism and uh, process philosophy, putting Marx and, and Whitehead together in interesting ways. We got uh, Buddhism, process thought, and ecofeminism. So, yeah, a lot to look forward to in that. Physical copies will be available for those who like the the aesthetic and the the realization of print media. But uh, digital copies will be free. Uh, so. This will be available online uh, sometime soon, and it will also be on our newly revamped uh, Center for Process Studies website, which is going to have some exciting stuff that uh, I'm putting together on there. So, yeah, lots lots, uh, in the works. This was great. Thanks for for chatting with me. Of course. I'll talk to you again. Yeah, peace. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. So thanks again to Jared. Thanks to the Center for Process Studies. Uh, Be sure to uh, check out the work that they're doing. I think the forthcoming journal will be really interesting and worth checking out. We invite you to check out our uh, newly created Patreon. I'll link to that in the show notes. And if supporting the show in that way is something that you would like to do, uh, we thank you and appreciate it. All right. See you next time.